Hey, Circle Tech listeners, thanks for joining me again. Today, we are talking to writer and director Stephen Burroughs about the first feature film he directed, the 2000 comedy film Chump Change. So as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive and no plot turn is sacred, so you have been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, but I also promise you it's a million times better if you watch the film first. So before we get started, how to watch Stephen Burroughs' Chump Change. As of the recording of this show, it's only available for rent on Netflix DVD, if you've even got that, or it's for sale on DVD on Amazon, where a used copy is usually around for just a few dollars. But look, this film is barely out there, so you are going to have to bend a bit to grab this one. But you can do it. Stephen Burroughs, Chump Change. Get a hold of it. Give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Well, the talking. Here we go. Alright guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. Sound speed. Uh, Stephen Burroughs interview, take one. This is The Circle Take. Conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film. And over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is writer-director Steve Burrows. Steve has been a successful commercial director for over 15 years, making a name for himself as one of the go-to guys for comedy commercials and winning countless awards along the way. But before this shining career in commercial world, Steve was an inspiring Hollywood guy, a writer, a comedy performer at Groundlings. He even made a short film that won him some awards. All of that might seem like a typical resume for a guy starting out in Hollywood, but Steve's experience was so extreme, he made the, the subject of his debut feature film, and in 2000, he wrote and directed Chump Change, which would go on to win him awards in festival circuits, and the film was eventually picked up and released by Miramax. In the film, Steve, who plays a version of himself everyone calls Milwaukee, has traveled back to his hometown of Milwaukee to sort out his life. He meets the woman who's been renting a room in his childhood home, played by Tracy Lords, and in this scene... As he's showing her around his town, he begins to tell her about his crazy experiences back in Hollywood. See those woods over there? That's where I shared my first kiss. That church? That's where I saw my first dead body. Next to that's the cop shop. The cop shop? Jug? Calaboose? Gray Bar Hotel? Yeah, I did some hard time there once. Trumped up charge. What'd you do, jailbird? I got Shanghai from sophomore biology class for mounting my fetal pig head on the bubbler. It's the only time I've ever been in trouble with Johnny Law. Till today, of course. Oops. And if you don't count when I got sued by Merv Griffin. You got sued by Merv Griffin? Yep. Talk show host Merv Griffin? Yep. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Merv Griffin. Yep. Why? Because I made a short film about my appearance and subsequent humiliation on his Wheel of Fortune game show. You were on Wheel of Fortune? Yep. And you were humiliated? Yes, ma'am. What happened? Terrible things. Like what? I can't say. You can't say? I can't say. You won't tell me? I can't tell you. Legally. Can I see your film? Nope. I can't see your film? No. I must see your film. I simply must. This is exactly how I got my movie deal. 
Steve Burrows, welcome to the Circle Take. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You know, I just want to clarify, if someone was listening to the show and they were like, I'm going to go try and find that film, is it one of those things like The Day the Clown Cried where we just absolutely will not be able to find it no matter how dig we deep? You're talking about the Soldier Fortune, the, the Wheel of Fortune movie. Yeah. You will not, uh, unless unless I give it to you, yeah, that is off the radar. In fact, we've thought about putting it on, you know, now there's, there's an internet and there's an interweb and the... YouTube and all that stuff. It really should be on there. The Merv Griffin people years ago, you know, they never even really watched the film. You know, we, we submitted it and they, they just rejected it outright. They never watched it. And we kindly cut a deal that I could use it as long as I wasn't making money. It would be like kind of a calling card. And when we got Chump Change made, the Weinstein brothers and Miramax, they wanted to put it on as an extra. It's like, it would be like the perfect extra. Oh, like on the DVD? On the DVD. Sure. And I, I told Miramax, I said, look, the Merv Griffin people, <laughs> They're hardcore, man. My guy, uh, Kevin Kasha, says, he goes, we got the Weinstein brothers. That Weinstein trumps Merv Griffin. I go, I don't know. <laughs> and for like six months, they went back and forth. And in the end, we lost. <laughs> they it's said, no, the DVD. it's not on the DVD. I'll, have to, I'll give you a copy of it before you leave today. Because we give it out liberally, but it's not up anywhere. It's ridiculous because it's just... Uh, it's my love letter to the Wheel of Fortune and, and my unbelievably bad performance on it, on the show. Which started my, actually, my entire career as a right. filmmaker. So when it came time to make this Chump Change movie, which sort of documents your insane Hollywood career starting with that film forward, yeah. what was it about that experience that made you decide to, A, write a script about it, and, and B, set out to actually make it into a feature film? I'd come close on, uh, I'd written three or four feature scripts that had been either optioned or came so close to selling. I got a meeting with one of the most, at the time, one of the most successful comedy producers in Hollywood. And he had saw, he saw, I gave him a copy of the Wheel of Fortune movie. And he said, let's go out there and pitch some stuff. And we ended up pitching my best ideas to this guy. And he just, as Tim Matheson does in the movie, it's, it's really closer to the truth than I would care to sometimes admit. This real Hollywood producer, I pitched him my ideas and he would go like that to me, like <laughs> In his office, I go. Well, I got this one idea where like it's a Bill Murray type, and he's he's a foreign exchange. And oh shoot, let's play a clip from the film. This is Tim Matheson, who's amazing in the movie. I don't know how he gets the energy to do what he does. It's insane. But this is a scene where you where you're pitching his character, trying to get him excited about some stuff, and Tim's character is concerned with a certain piece of his body responding in just the right way. That's right. You realize if I like just one of your ideas, how rich you will be. <sighs> That's great. Okay. Simon Says, pitch me. Come on, pitch me, pitch me, pitch me, pitch me. Okay, 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 okay. Um, all right. I have this idea about a 45-year-old ex-con who gets released from prison and he enrolls in college where he befriends this troubled 18-year-old kid and they're both freshmen in the true sense of the word. No, 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 no. I got no patience for irony. Next. Oh. Okay, um, Come on, bitch, bitch, bitch. okay, 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 all right, um, I, I, I have this one idea that deals with this guy who finds out he only has one day to live. Now, this film asks the question... Oh, for the love of Christ, who gives a rat's ass? Next! Okay, well, uh, I, there's this one I have, um, it's about the, the perfect crime. Blah, 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 next. Do you want to hear the perfect crime? <laughs> next! Actually, this... Simon? Look, Simon, I I'm sorry. I I'm new at this. I I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong here. It's not twitching. Excuse me? My penis. Uh, I'm sorry? When I hear a good idea for a movie, my penis twitches. 
It's your job as a writer to make my penis twitch. It's that simple. Now Simon says, make me twitch. <laughs> to answer your question before we played that clip, as I was trying to get a movie made somehow. In rooms much like that one. Exactly like that one. That is actually closer to the actual truth than I would ever really. I mean, it, it's kind of painful sometimes, even though I, we played it for laughs. In real life, it was I couldn't believe it. So I would tell my friends, we all have our Hollywood horror stories and everyone's got their crazy stories. And I would always kind of wait and sit back. And then I would tell them my story on this particular movie I was writing for 20th Century Fox. I had pitched with this guy. I gave him my best ideas. He shot them all down. Then he said to me, I thought you were funny. He starts like insulting me. He said, I thought you were funny. He goes, I want to do Police Academy. And I was like desperate, right? So I just blurted out in real life. I blurted out, I go, fireman. He goes, that's it, (laughs) fireman. You know, I'm at Universal Studios and then top floor and this guy is like what's funny about fire you know people with third degree burns and stuff that's not funny and i go what if they're volunteer firemen because my father-in-law was a volunteer fireman i always thought that was kind of funny he goes that's it and then i'm ushered out of the room in real life and by the time i get home which is like just a half hour away there's a message from my agent that said i just sold a summer hollywood blockbuster movie to universal 20th century fox and it's called hook and ladder (laughs) they already had a title for it and he goes i don't know what you did but they love you and i'm like i don't even know what i'm doing And that real life experience of writing this movie called Hook and Ladder over a period of like a year was without question the single, you know, worst experience of my entire life. And I kept notes because it kept getting weirder and weirder. And I would share it with my fellow people out here in LA. And I always seemed to be able to trump their horror stories because it got really, at one point it got really dark as well. So when this was happening to you in real life, the writer inside you was already thinking, this is a good story. I better write this down. Yes, because I was, I was starting to get notes. It was the notes process. I was told literally by this guy, this is a comedy, right? And I did my research. Like comedies are like, you know, 90 minutes to 100 minutes, 90 pages to 100 pages. And this guy specifically told me, I want 130 pages. He kept saying it over and over again. I'm like, that's a little long, but I ran it past my agent manager. They're like, it's too long, but if that's what he says. So I turn in that first draft. 130 pages? 130 pages. And he flips out. He calls me in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, and he reams me. I mean, he reams me like... <laughs> well, I don't want to give away too much of this, because you can yeah. see the movie, and it's all in there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so I just... Yeah. To an excruciating degree, it's, <laughs> it still hurts. It really is an unbelievable tale, what happens in this film. So once you've written this screenplay about your life, how does it go from there to... You know, this is done back in 2000. You're shooting yeah. on film. Yeah. So there's a budget required to make this thing happen in some way, shape, or form. How does that come into play? I was told by my producer, Marianne Page, at the time, she said, just make sure this thing is funny on the page and with great characters that actors will want to play. He goes, she goes, we're, we're going to get it made. If name actors, because we had no budget, right? We, we figured it was going to be, you know, like it ended up being a $500,000 film. She said, we will get really good people if they think that they can come in for a couple days and be funny. No long-term commitment if you can make them look good. She knew Jerry Stiller and Amira, and she gave them the script, and it was just like, you guys can play whatever you want to play, and I kind of wrote roles for them, and they were really smart enough to realize that those were the roles. (laughs) They were truly, I mean, truly wonderful people, really funny people. And Ann said, look, we're going to do the movie. You know, I want to play the casting director. Jerry will play the... The colonel. She goes, but you got to you got to put my daughter in there, who is uh, Amy Stiller. Yeah, who's great in the movie. And I did not know Amy at the time. And I was at lunch with Marianne and Ann Mira, and Ann Mira made it very plain to me that I should strongly consider casting Amy. And that she gave me her, you know, her reel. And I looked at him like this. This chick is great. 
how come we don't you know we know ben right we don't know amy amy just ripped it up i mean she i mean she was just fantastic but those were the first ones on board and then we could go out with this little script and say, well, we got, you know, you got some got names now. Comedy Other legends. people are more willing to come on board. Absolutely. Sure. So uh, I thought Tim Matheson, he was Otter in Animal House. I've, I've loved this guy forever. And we just got a little, not cocky, but we got confident that maybe we could get him. And he watched Soldier of Fortune and read the script. And he said, yeah, for three days. He only gave us three days. He had three days to do like all of his stuff. I don't know how he did it. It's sort of remarkable when you watch the film to think that this guy was only on set for three days because he looks like he's a much bigger piece of the film than that. Was it like a... It feels like there were two shoots on this film. It feels like there was one shoot in L.A., And then pick up sticks and whole cloth and a whole other experience out in Wisconsin. That's exactly what we did. We shot it in L.A. in December, and then we went to Wisconsin in January, where we got hit. All the snow is... I mean, we got hit with a record, you know... No movie snow in this one. No, (laughs) absolute fortuitous. It still was like, I think, four feet of snow or something like that. We just got lucky with the snow when it came down. But Tim was the big, you know, I don't know how he did it because I'm not sure the percentage of how it all worked out in the film. But he, we gave him the script like a week before we shot. And I said, there's no way he's going to be able to memorize. I mean, I have written very specific bits for this guy. Yeah. Timing wise, he's an old pro. He's been in everything. But I don't, I don't know how you. And he pulls it off, I assume, one or two takes. I mean, you had so much material I to don't, shoot with the guy. I, I don't remember ever shooting more than two takes with him. I mean, like, no coverage. He, do, he does the rules of comedy in what looks like one take. That was one take. And it's, let's actually, let's play it. It's awesome. It's, it's a one and the guy just kills it. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. Have I ever told you about my theories on comedy? I don't think so. These are the rules of comedy, okay? For instance, right place, wrong time, funny. Wrong place, right time, funny. Wrong place, wrong time, not funny. Stupid, funny, retarded, not funny. Fat, funny, bald, funny. Hair, not funny. But toupees and wigs, very funny, don't ask me why. Falling down, it's funny. Old is funny. Grandpa funny, grandma funny. Grandpa getting whacked in the crotch, funny. Grandma getting whacked in the crotch, not funny. But grandma getting whacked in the head, very funny, don't ask me why. Farting is always funny. Farting at inopportune times, killer funny. Pets peeing on their owners, funny. Owners peeing on their pets, not funny. But bodily functions by pets and people in general, very funny all the time. Don't ask me why. (laughs) Well, I'll be. (laughs) Is that cool? And I'll tell you why, because it all boils down to physical comedy. I love physical comedy because it's so, so physical. You see a man walking down the street, cut to a shot of a manhole cover, you assume he's gonna fall through. That's suspense. But when he steps over the manhole, boom, gets hit by a bus, that's comedy. Boy, you really should be writing this down. (laughs) I I, I was thinking too, as I was listening to that, I I think we did a rehearsal, but I think we just ran lines. It wasn't like a, a rehearsal. It was just like, I wanted to know if he knew it because I had prepared we were going to have cue cards for him because, I don't know, we, we just didn't know if he, if he was going to show up because there was so much to do, and he knew it cold. He knew that like he'd done it, uh, you know, once a week for 10 years, kind of a line. It was, it you was, know, he, he was living inside that line completely. I, and, to, and to think that this guy was on set for three days is really sort of humbling. No, in, it, in a number even of to ways. this day, I go, I mean, you know, he's, he still works all the time, and he's, he was such a gentleman. But he told me, he said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know my stuff. He knew that we had a low budget. He said, Don't, you're not going to be waiting on me. 
we literally we had some PAs who read out the, on that first day all the cue cards because we thought he's going to need them. Just in case. Him. Never Not needed once. them. No. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of it. How many days was the LA shoot? Well, the whole shoot was. Let's. Go, I have to go backwards a little bit. I think we. It was a twenty-one day shoot. And that included three days of pickups around Wisconsin on the road of all the B-roll of bars and all that stuff. So I'm going to say 18. So I think we shot two weeks here in L.A. Two weeks in L.A. A little, then, a little less than two weeks in L.A. and then another week in uh, Wisconsin. Were there any unions on this? I mean, obviously SAG. SAG. But was that the only union on uh, here? Writers Guild. Writers Guild well. for you. Yeah. Okay. I was not Directors Guild at the time. And then all non-union crew yeah. on both sides. Yeah. Were you doing uh, five day weeks or six day weeks? I think we uh, we were six. We so did just six. banging through it. Oh, we were yeah. knocking it out. I mean, yeah. I, it, it was so we had a, it was a hundred and two, hundred three page script, and yeah, it was like, yeah. how are we going to do this? I had a great do 10 AD. Pages a day is what you're going to do. And <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. We just keep moving and moving and moving. We yeah. rarely did more than maybe two takes in general. Right. And then in 2000, I think HD video came out roughly about 2007 is kind of when it really matured. Was there ever a, even a moment of considering video or no. another format was always going to be film? Yeah, my, my DP, a guy named Alan Baker out of New York, he wanted to shoot film. It was what he knew. He was convinced financially they had it all worked out. They had some sort of a deal with Kodak or and CFI in Hollywood mm-hmm. where we, we had the film. And I, I was never really quite sure how we were pulling this off on right. film. Not your department. Just keep shooting. Right. I tend to be a first, you know, because uh, my improv background, I tend to be like a, my first or second take as a performer always is the one. Um, I start overthinking things and I get into three, four, five, whatever. I start to fall right. apart. And, 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 and honestly, you don't have time to do five, six, seven takes per setup. No, no, we. I mean, this this film, as I'm sure you saw, lacks coverage. I learned very quickly <laughs> what you need to cover and what you don't need to cover. And it's a brutal lesson, especially like on the, that first week mm-hmm. where you're just like, do we really need this? Like my producer would say to me, do we really need this scene? Not this shot. Right, like the this whole scene. scene. Yeah. Like this, I said, but it's funny. She goes, doesn't move the story forward. Right. You know, it's just a tangent. It's just a little bit of an ego thing for you. And I, in, in I learned later on and I let go of some of those, but I also, there were some, I said, no way. And we shot them and editing the movie, none of them made Took them out. Yeah. They yeah. were, they were, they were too much. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you did this for, you know, about a half a million, yeah. which is not a lot of money. How many people were on your crew? Now you had two different crews, right? We did. And you know, the weird thing is, I, again, I don't know how we financially pulled this off, but the key crew members from LA department heads the department heads so your DP obviously is going to come with yes. you to Wisconsin and a guy named Harry Hope he's Bob Hope's kid or Bob Hope's nephew or something like that he was our key grip uh, or our gaffer and his whole crew I mean everybody the main crew out here they drove all the stuff out to uh, Wisconsin and we had ancillary people in Wisconsin kind of fill in the blanks but the main crew from LA they wanted to come to Wisconsin they all believed in the film they were having a great time so how many people was that total? In Wisconsin? Well, the whole crew. You know, when I look at the list, uh, I just looked at the list the other day. It's a full crew. 60 people? Wow. Like wow. easily, like 60. Wow. You know, and I think we had maybe about half that maybe in Wisconsin. It's a big group to command it on was, your first film. It was, a, I'm not sure how we found all these people, but every person on that, I mean, they just, it was a run and gun crew. Sure. They just knew they knew how they knew what they were doing. If I said let's shoot over here, I was thinking about this. They just, they'd already started setting up. They're done. We're, you know, yeah. there was never any arguments about any of that stuff. How long were your days? Did you ever have like one of those crazy they, marathon days? They were all long. I remember like we were shooting by seven, 
wrapping, you know, it, these were 12 hour days minimum. And I was a little worried about that having come up through the production ranks. I didn't want to burn these people out and have these people, you know, hating on me. Mm-hmm. They they really were like, and by their way, they're all in the movie. All the we just all your sh- background people is the crew. It's the crew. They're all there. Sure. It's like we. I need someone to do this. Right. Can you do this? Oh yeah. So yeah. the whole crew is in the. They're alive and well in the movie as well. Was it a challenge? Because this is not one of the short films. Like a lot of low budget films, a lot of first time films. The, the advice you get all the time is like keep it in one location, pick a nice house, showcase it, and do it all there. Which is a smart move and can be done effectively if you really work the space well. But this is not that movie at all. This film is in a bunch of locations. Was it challenging as a first-time filmmaker to be constantly moving through so many different spaces? It was, but I kind of knew at one point about three or four months before we actually shot that it was probably going to happen. So I had a lot of time to like really pick locations. Like, down, for instance, down in Venice, for instance. And I know a lot of people use Venice. There's all those scenes of that great sort of spray paint skate park. Exactly. That's yeah. gone now, I guess. But we knew there were like three or four key locations down there that we were going to use. And when I say run and gun, it, it really was. We, we knew where we were going to shoot individual scenes. And we were also prepared to blow that off if we had to. It's like, okay, if we have to shoot right here, we want to do it right in front of the column. And something was going on and there's like something that we could not control. We just kind of turned 180 over this way, just going to make it work. And the crew, they were so experienced, they were just along for it. So, And I was an improvisational guy. I just wanted to like get the material quickly if we could. And the film is filled with improvisational actors, even though the, you know most of this stuff was written. We were on the move. And I would say, to try to answer your question more concisely, we really tried to pick our shots in advance so that we could hit those quickly. Never got married into anything if we couldn't, but to mix it up, even if that meant just turning the camera you know, just to the left to give us a different look, just so editorially we would have some things. Because I don't, I don't have proper coverage in the movie, as you probably uh, saw. A lot of this stuff is one-take wonders, you know? But still effective to tell the story. Do you feel like you had one short film under your belt when you made this movie? Yes. Do you feel like making that short film in any way prepared you for this undertaking? Absolutely. In my instance, because I'm a type of a writer-director... Well, I was at the time, I was a writer-performer type, like at the Groundlings and stuff, and I had never really directed anything until that first short film. The one thing about directing the short film for me was you, you shoot it and because it's comedy it's timing you know it's a rhythm and to be able to start to physically make it i mean you, you have to like put it together somehow if it's going to work or not if it's funny if it's not funny you're you're, you're done and there's no way I, I could have pulled off chump without that first wheel of fortune movie i mean it was in- incredibly essential to just know what the heck is going on with just the, the facets of production and that was also shot sure. on film we shot that on film too yeah and i'm not a technical director at all any technical things with sound or camera coverage lenses even to this day i'm shaky on lenses i'm embarrassed to say that i just i rely on on the pros for that but mm-hmm. when it comes down to story and character in my experience you want to try to get it as right as you can on the page and then when you're shooting it if it's not working be prepared to punt I feel like I see that even in your commercial work. I feel like a lot of what your commercial work, your specialty is, is creating really strong, immediately definable characters that are interesting in 10 seconds, which is it has nothing to do with what the camera's doing or any technical stuff. It's all about creating these really interesting, memorable characters. That's for me, it started like at the, I go back to the groundlings. You know, I don't know if you want to call it a hook or like in commercials, you I mean, you have 30 seconds. That's not a lot of time to develop anything. 
Especially, I think, when, I think you have less to to define who that guy is. You have thirty seconds to tell the whole story and sell some product at the end. But at the beginning, you've got like, especially in a lot of the spots that you've done, there's a guy, and I've got eight or ten seconds to hook into this guy and care about him, and it's really successful. Well, thank you. It, you know, I had the pleasure of working overseas a lot with some of the commercials and with some pretty, I mean, some of the budgets are like well over what we did jump change for. Sure. Right? And, you know, you've got these great producer and DP types over in like London and Scotland and they're throwing money at you with, do we have steady cams and do we have these cranes? And anytime I've been tempted and anything to work with any of those things, and I'm not saying that those things aren't great, but in comedy, at least for me, because you have such a short time and you want to set up whatever the bit is or the character is so that it can pay off or whatever. Anytime I've used any type of highfalutin <laughs> camera work, when we get to the editorial, we never use the shot because in the end, it's, it's about the performance. It's, it's, it's like the cowboy and then it's the close up and that's it. Another thing I've learned is like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've shot with like the steady cams and it's so much fun, but you know, you're on the move and there's not enough time to have the shot be long enough for the move to be justified. And it's like, oh my God, we could have saved so much money. This is a great transition into post-production now because I often find that filmmakers will get talked into things like super long steady cam shots by their DP who want to do these great oneers, And then you get into post-production and lo and behold, it didn't work and we cut it up anyway. Right. So now you've got some scenes in your film in particular that are built entirely in post-production. For instance, there's in the first act of your film, you're setting up your character, doing some improv, and they put on a show, and it goes terribly. And there's this uh, montage that goes all through basically a catalog of sketches they're going to perform in their show, which is a really long list of sketches. I I was actually watching it thinking, these are short sketches because there's a ton of them. Did you guys in the script have that beat out to where... It's going to be this, it's going to be this, it's going to be this. Or was that something that in post you realized, we need a montage here, we got to go build this? The main goal of that show sequence was to, to be as funny as possible, as quickly as possible, and get as much many funny bits in there to show that characters were, even though it was this low-rent show, that they were funny. But they were all kind of one-liners. They weren't like real. Right. We kind of came up with 50 bits, one-liners. And my thing was, all right, this is going to be a montage, I think. We're going to go to the stage where we shot it, Little Theater, and we're going to have all the costumes over here, and we're going to go, okay, what is this? This is um, Diana Ross and the White Supremacists. And we, you know, that's a sketch, right? But we didn't have the actual sketch. We just had the one line, and we all kind of did what we thought we would do in that moment, and then next. And we just, we literally shot probably 40 or 50 quick bits, and I had no idea if any were funny or not. I had no idea what order they were going to be used in. But so you really just kind of shot like kind of a work bin of stuff yeah. to then be like, you know what, we'll figure that out later. Absolutely. And did that kind of a scene come together pretty easily for you in post? Or was it like, oh man, I don't know what to... It did because the crew was in this, we had the whole crew and they, everyone was, they were moving so fast down in Venice and then we finished the day at this little theater over there and they were all sitting in the theater kind of watching us and we were kind of performing for them, the crew, as we're shooting these bits. So if you get a good laugh, kind of make a little note. What I would do is actually when I got to editorial and I came up to the show sequence and I saw I had 50 bits to choose from and I was going to use probably 20 of them, you could hear the crew. Oh, if the crew was you laughing. You could hear them in production at, sound laughing. Yeah. At the end of it, we would do the bit and we would go, ah, and if they weren't laughing, it was like, uh. That one didn't work. Yeah. So we, I just pulled all the funny ones. Right. And then kind of build them into a sequence where they were escalating a little bit and they had a kind of a flow to it and 
you know editorially if things are kind of working or not. And sure. We built it, but it was completely built from nothing. I'm thinking about the shoot in Wisconsin editorially. You know, something in LA, if you had to, you could run out and grab a pickup or something. Was there anything in post-production where you were sort of locked into some stuff that you just, because... It was a location shoot in Wisconsin in the middle of a snowstorm yeah. that you just couldn't get more. Wisconsin, that was a tough shoot. And we decided, I wanted to do so many more things. We had found these bars to shoot at and these kind of weird, there's these domes things that are happening there. And I wanted to get kind of the iconic, kitschy... The, the crazy two-lane basement bowling alley. Holler house. I mean, I had all these things that I've always wanted to put in a movie. And here was my shot. And I thought, and again, these are like one-take wonders. Like I had to like grab it. And then the snow came, which was production value, great, but also slowed down the crew. A lot of our crew were L.A. people, and they were debilitated. I mean, Yeah, that was going to be my question. Yeah, my you bring AD, out all your people from L.A., these are not people familiar with snow, let alone driving their grip truck in snow. Exactly. So some of the hardcore people have been around, but I remember our first AD, Josh Binder, you know, he there was one day where we, we <laughs> he was in trouble. He's, he, he was so cold. Like, he, his feet were so cold we had to get him like medical help he just didn't have the we, the, the clothing no they, and people came they brought their gloves but this was like you know right. it was they're, they're, they're quote-unquote la gloves yeah. not real gloves no, it got hard and it slowed us down so we and I had to simplify things that's why we did a at the end after we finished principal photography we did a three days of just quick pickup shots of like transitional things which i completely forgot about someone told me remember you want to do transitions in between scenes remember you want to do like pickup shots and get some b-roll i'm like what when did you get that advice oh i got that advice like six months before this shoot okay in la completely unattached to the film right? i didn't think about it. i was i was thinking about getting tim matheson and getting his coverage and make sure we right. get the lines and make sure the bits are funny you didn't have anything to connect that idea to it was just conceptual no. and even in the script i didn't write transitions and my ad said you're going to have to think of transitions you think of you know how do you get from the studio over to the apartment so when did it hit you in production that you needed to go grab those we shot at a, most of the la stuff and we were there for almost two weeks occidental studios you know where that is kind of downtown la yeah yeah we were shooting so fast my dp said he goes you know why we're here we probably should shoot some of that b-roll stuff i'm like ah, i don't really get that it's going to slow us down he goes while we're here, let's just take a couple hours and grab some stuff. And I didn't, I didn't, I have to be honest, I didn't understand it. And because he was such an experienced DP, he just went out and fired off a bunch of stuff for me that I'm like, oh my God, thank you. So when we went to Wisconsin, it became clear that I was deeply unprepared for coverage and transitions. And that's why we did that little three day. Did you begin editorial before you went to Wisconsin? No, no, we finished the whole film. After we finished Wisconsin, L.A., Wisconsin. Then we came back, and actually, everything was transferred on VHS. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so, I watched... so you so you did your few hours of grabbing some B-roll with mm -hmm. your DP because yeah. he said, "Trust me, you'll need this." Yes. And then you went to Wisconsin and just continued to kind of essentially blindly trust him and get some more. Completely. I don't think I ever. I, I shouldn't even say this, but I'm not sure I ever took the time to look through a lens. Because I'm in the film as well. Sure. I'm so comfortable performing because it's my shtick. I wrote it. You know, I should clarify here too, for people who haven't seen the film, I think you're in every single scene in the film. <laughs> so it's one of those films where you're directing the film, but you're not looking at the lens. You're in the film. Yeah. You know, the whole time. Absolutely. I, I learned, one of the things I learned from my DP, he taught me very quickly about proper coverage, minimal proper coverage. If you're in trouble, make sure you get this, get a master shot. Just run it once. Just You're going to need it because you need to, to cut away cut or whatever. Something. Exactly. 
And I never understood that. I said, we're never going to be shooting this. I'm never going to be showing, you know, if it's Tim Matheson and Tracy Lords in this scene or whatever, this wide shot and it's beautiful and it looks good and it took a long time to light. I'm never going to use it. Never. And then, of course, you know, six months later, where's that shot? We need it. Right. And we had it. So it was in editorial when you discovered all these B-roll shots that your DP had suggested you do yes. were somehow magically useful. Yeah. There was a, um, you know how things are in uh, reels, right? And I got all these v- VHS tapes of all the footage in order. I watched everything. So I knew my footage. And then there was like three or four VHS tapes of like extra B-roll transition. And I'm like, I don't even want to watch this stuff. And I'm watching it. As I'm watching it, it's beautiful, but it still hasn't hit me because I haven't started to build the scene. Right. So now when I go into edit and I start the movie, and I'm like, oh, I need an establishing shot. And I didn't shoot one, but Al did. There it is. And it's it's just like a shot of the sky it comes down or whatever. And it's like elegant and simple and thank you. Because what would we do without it? We'd have to be going shooting it all because it would have right. been so choppy and so horrible what a great gift yeah that was i, I lucked out with uh, the crew i mean dp you know i just watched it the other day and and everybody um you know i know this is we all work on a lot of different things and everyone's working on whatever they're working on they give their best there was something about our film that i think because we were an underdog film and i was just open i was open if somebody I, I couldn't come up with a funny line the craft service person would say hey what about this you know i was open i didn't sure. care where it came from and I think there's something about a film about the business that people in the business can connect to because it's rare to have a film that really says so clearly, it really is this crazy and we all get it, you know? Yeah, they got it and they pushed it. They never, I can't remember once where there were any like types of disagreement. It was a party. I think because we were moving so fast and furious and people were coming in. Fred Willer was there one day. AJ Benza comes in. Ann Mira, Jerry Stiller, you know, Clancy Brown came in to play this crazy acting teacher you know and it was just like this whirlwind uh, I couldn't believe I was getting away with this that I was actually being allowed to do this and I think one of the reasons was because we did it we were prepped we knew our lines and we knew our limitations as well Let's transition to the next thing I'd like to talk about because you can be as prepped as you want to be and you can you know know your lines as well as you want such as Tim Matheson brilliantly showed us but everyone makes mistakes so now it's time to play the game we like to call did that really happen this is brought to you by the hive mind that makes up the comment section on imdb since your film is a movie about the business of making a movie you're going to hear about some mistakes made in other movies about the biz possibly submitted to imdb by its fanatically observant users or possibly completely made up by our own resident imdb geek the rules are simple listen to the goof Tell us if it really happened or if we're full of it. Ready okay. To play? Yeah, great. All right. Here's your first one. Oddly enough, Fred Willard also appeared in this movie about movie guys, directed by Robert Altman in 1992's The Player. When Neil reads the newspaper story about the murder, a close up of the article reveals that it is just the same few paragraphs. Printed over and over. Is this a real gaffe? Did we make it up? I think it's real. You were right. It is real. <laughs> Art department got lazy, and Altman <laughs> apparently didn't care to fix it. Shot the close-up anyway. I think All we right. did something like that in Chump, too. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your next one. Before torture porn was even a thing... Kevin Spacey got tied up and abused in this 1994 cult favorite, Swimming with Sharks. 
guy stays late to bury the article about Buddy in time. When Buddy calls, telling him to record the Foster Kane interview on TV, Guy picks up the real-life script and writes Foster Kane on it. In the shots of Guy writing from the front, he is using a Sharpie permanent marker. But in the overhead shots, he is clearly using a big ballpoint pen. So now this time it's props department to blame for handing the actor a Sharpie in one setup and a ballpoint pen in the other. I think that one's made up. You are amazingly correct. In fact, it was the other way around in the movie. Was it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's your last one. Okay. In perhaps the weirdest movie about making movies, which isn't really a movie about movies, but more of a movie in a movie about movies, sort of the inception of movies about movies, Spike Jones tours us through the mind of writer Charlie Kaufman, voiced through the mega-acting of Nicolas Cage in 2002's adaptation. When Charlie is getting takeout from the restaurant and bumps into Valerie, he leaves the restaurant in a hurry and does not take his bag of takeout food with him. But in the next scene, we see him eating the takeout food. A little continuity gaffe with the bag of takeout food. I, I think that's made up. Yes, sir, that one is true. Wow. It's a big one, I think. The actor forgot to take the food, and for whatever reason... That's why I thought it was made they up. didn't shoot it again. No. Really? It's, it's like that in the film. Wow. Look, the people on IMDb, they will they will find all of them. Yes. All of them. So some of these mistakes, obviously, are inane and stupid, um, but some of them are just things that get under your under your chest and just uh, won't leave you alone. Is, is there anything in the film that still kills you, that you just wish you you could have gotten and, and didn't get or just something that went wrong that just still gets you? Oh my god there's so many. The biggest mistake I made on this film that I if I could do that all over again, my producer told me, Marianne Page, told me with the script, and I wrote the script to be a you know tight movie, but there was three or four scenes where she thought that were just like gratuitous and frivolous and funny but not a part of the movie and I said, no, you're wrong. This is dear to me, and it's the soul of the character and all this stuff. And, you know, you add that stuff up, and I think, like, that was maybe two days of shooting. Those scenes aren't in the movie. Because I shot them, I fought for them, the work that we did on them, and she was right, you know. Um, My biggest mistake was I didn't listen to what I probably already knew, because I kind of fell in love with my own material a little bit. And I couldn't let it go. And and I would say that if you have the opportunity to cut material that is extra or if it's not moving the story forward or the characters forward, really, you have to take a good hard look at your story. Because those scenes, I think, if you really are honest with yourself, they kind of pop out. Do you think it's more difficult to detect those scenes when they're just on the written page in the script versus seeing them cut together in the editing room? (laughs) That's a great question. For me, I, I think I didn't want to see it on the page, right? So I, I had to like film it, but I saw that because our budget was so low, even though, you know, I mean, 500 grand is a lot of money, but boy, I would like to have had a couple extra days to work on some other things. Like I didn't have enough time with Tracy Lords, you know, when we were in Wisconsin. We'd only had so many days budgeted. She is not an improvisational actor. You know, I love her and she's, she's wonderful, but I wish we would have had a little more time to do a little bit more conventional coverage. Mm-hmm. 
because I think we, she and I would have both benefited from that a little more. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're out there in the snow and all that stuff, it's fine. But when we're inside, it was seemed like we were, it, things seemed a little bit formal. And I would have liked it to be maybe a little bit looser, but I didn't have the days because I had just shot. You'd you fought know, for these two days yeah. worth of scenes that you'd cut out of the movie. The comedy bits, <laughs> right? Right. And it was like, it became very clear. They all were funny, but they just did not belong. Didn't move the story. Exactly. Yeah. And it was something that I actually never forgot and has always stayed with me since. And everything I've ever yeah. worked on now, I can I try to make those editorial changes material-wise prior to shooting. Yeah. Is there something that cost you a particular shot because of a, a mistake was made where it was like, oh, now we can't get that shot? Well, there were so many times because we were working such long days that we, you know, I, I can't think of a time. You know, my, my crew always kind of made it work. You know, they also, they had a couple cameras. So if we needed something that, where the sun was going down or something, they would break away. We'd do like an improvisational. Get a B team and they'd go get And it. they would go get it. And sometimes I didn't even know about it because I was so focused on what we're shooting when I got to the dailies, I would be like pleasantly surprised. Like, I don't, I don't remember that shot. I wasn't there for that. You know, did you know you were being the kind of leader that your crew would go to bat for and go get that shot without even you knowing about it? Having been an actor long enough, I saw the kinds of directors that I responded to. And there were the type of directors who were like ran their sets with fear and, you know, screaming at people and stuff like that. That never worked for me. You know, it worked for them. Because there were some very successful Because they're directors. still working. Right. Yeah. Whenever I get a shot to do something for the first time, I wanted it to be clearly my story and my voice, but I also, I'm working with some really talented people. So like Fred Willard, for instance, I wanted everybody to have truly as much fun because I, I, I wanted it to be a fun movie. I wanted it to be like a kind of a rollicking romp of a film. And I thought the best way to do that is to actually not be screaming and yelling and be an asshole. And, you know, no assholes. That was basically the number one rule. You know, it's just we just didn't tolerate it. I wanted to be open so ideas would come from everywhere. I was able to make quick decisions and go, go, boom, boom, boom. Like, I wrote these bits, right? And then all of a sudden I get Fred Willard comes in. We got him kind of at the last minute because he had heard Tim Matheson was in it. He only signed on because Tim and Jerry were in it. You know, I don't think he would have done it right. unless they were... So he comes in, and I've got these lines for him. He plays my manager in the movie. And I'm very pleased with these lines that I've worked very hard on. And he says in the most professional Fred Willard way, he goes, hey, i got a couple ideas. Do you mind if I throw some out too? And I said, yeah, let's, let's run mine and then run yours. Or you can run yours first and whatever. You know, I, just, I was kind of like deferential. And we start doing it, and he starts throwing these like, he's written me these unbelievable jokes. He's given them to me for free. And we did his run first. I think we did his run first, where I said, yeah, you do your run, and then we'll, you know, we'll do mine. Just do the, do the script once. And he does his bits, and I'm like, I can't, I can't top those. Let's just keep those. Right. And as the film came out, I saw that people were just really responding to Fred and his jokes, and they're all his jokes. You know, he just took my jokes and rewrote them and made them Fred Willery. And I was, you know, smart enough to like... Let him write them in the best way he can do them. Yeah, I, I feel like probably one of my strengths as a director is to know when somebody, whether it's a crew member or whether it's another actor, when they're giving you something really good to embrace it. Just shut up and get out of the way. And you can, you know, you'll have time to like an editorial to like tweak things and fix them. But, you know, when someone gives you a gift and people came on board to this thing, ready to play. And, but, you know, I hope it shows because I, I, I took what they gave me, you know? I like to close the show with what I call the circle takes and talk about the things that you learned from this. Was there something you learned that surprised you about the process? Yeah, I, I was surprised. I can't say that the shoot went easy because it, wasn't, it was a hard shoot, but we were shooting so much fun and it was run and gun and fun. 
I could not believe how prepared the actors were. There was no attitudes. And there was kind of like this camaraderie. It was kind of... Uh, I was surprised on how well the, the shoot went in Wisconsin and in L.A., even with all the troubles. I also was surprised how difficult and nearly debilitating <laughs> finishing the movie was. Because we shot this thing in 21 days. And I yeah. thought, boom, right? And then we cu- I think I cut it in three months. That's quick. It was done, yeah. right? And then we started the process of trying... It was an independent film. It was not set up. And I thought, oh, wow, the shoot. I wrote the script in 25 days, shot the movie in 21 days. I hit the et- movie's edited in three months. This thing is going like a champ. Right. Cut to two years later. Still, still trying try- to sell it. Still trying to sell it. We ran out of money repeatedly. We had negative problems. There was a negative situation where the negative was off by one frame and there was it was a whole deal <laughs> technical nightmare and that shut us down that's yeah. a, that's three months there do you think that's the most difficult thing just once it was wrapped up is take it to market post post produ- general. well post-production finishing the movie technically for me was one of the hardest things i mean it was i just thought oh i, I just made a movie with tracy lords and tim matheson and we're fun we're at laughing and here it is it's fun Oh, we got to add this sound now. Oh, I got to add Foley. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, I got to... I have frame problems. There's issues with the negative. Oh, right. my God. And then we handle all that. Now we have to sell it, right? Between finishing it and the festivals. Once we got to the festivals, things kind of took off. But then, of course, there were the, the deliverables. When the, the great day when we had Miramax buy us. Where they hand you a, uh, a booklet of papers, and it's all technical bullet points of, like, give us this, 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 this. We got this FedEx in the mail, and it was the binder, the Miramax deliverable binder. It was like reading a foreign language. And I was in trouble. I, I didn't understand, like, any of it. You're not just the, the filmmaker, the director, the writer. You're, you're the producer now. Yes. I am the reluctant, the very reluctant producer. <laughs> Post-production <laughs> Is, producer. Right. Is there something, if you're making another feature film, that you would do differently based on this experience? Yes. I wish I would have asked somebody... And I know this is like basic, right? But filmmaking-wise, technically, I get the writing and the casting and the directing and the shooting. I wish I would have asked for or had a better understanding of, of literally someone. I wish someone would have just told me or I would have been smart enough to ask someone, what are the steps in finishing a film? Maybe what are the steps of making the entire film? Now, I know, obviously, writing it and casting it and getting the money. And all, but in the post-world... It would have saved me two years of my life if I would have known you do the sound first, you re-record the sound, the foley. Somebody give me that order, the negative cutting, the color timing, the final mix. I had no idea. I had some guy over at CFI, a guy named Dan Wesselman, take pity on me one day. You know, this is like year six. And he's like, Steve, how can I help you? I said, I just don't know the order of things, man. And he just wrote them out on a piece of paper. And I'm like, oh. And you have the, that framed in your house And the, the skies <laughs> opened up. Fortunately, I was almost done, but boy, it would have helped me right. to know. To know that ahead of time would have been... Yeah, I, no one told me. Is there some advice that you could give to an aspiring first-time filmmaker? Someone who might, you know, like yourself, have a short film. Maybe they've gone to film school. You know, we now live in a world where there's untold number of film schools out there somebody can go to. Mm-hmm. Is there some advice that you could give somebody like that? Yeah. You know, I started as a PA. I know there are great film schools out there. I also know they cost a lot of money and I'm sure they're, it's worth every penny of it. But I would say there's so many productions here in, in town. You know, you have your iPhone or if you have a story you want to tell, 
I think you can figure out a way to shoot it simply and creatively. I learned most of the stuff about how a set works by starting as a PA and just watching people. Oh, I saw the cameraman did that. I saw the director does this. I saw the script girl does this. I saw the wardrobe. And I saw what I kind of wanted to do, what I didn't want to do. And I think getting involved, this is my opinion, I, wouldn't, I would not go to film school. I would go to a film shoot. I'd start as a PA and get hardcore practical experience watching professionals do it also because of our the technology the way it is i think there are amazing things that are done on just iphones that we couldn't do when i started i i needed like the whole panavision camera which i didn't even know how to use you know i think doing it and maybe this is just oversimplistic but i really think that if you want to do something whether it's you know 30 seconds a 30 second commercial or a three minute movie or a half hour movie it, it can be done you just it's hard you know nothing easy is hard or nothing as hard as easy. I think that's what I meant. Nothing hard is easy. One of those two. <laughs> Even the best jobs I've ever had, they're all hard, but they're worth it, especially if you just make it as good as you can make it. Steve Burris, thank you so much for being on The Circle Take. That's our show for today. Uh, the Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where there's always more episodes to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take, where we post photos from our conversations, schedule updates, and previews of upcoming shows. And of course, all of this, the podcast links, clips, notes, and more, is all available on our website at thecircletake.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Schmid, and you can circle that one.